Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me. My name is Cosima B. Concordia. And my name's Aurora Leiborn. And welcome to season two, our villain arc. Our, our hiatus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our long hiatus. Thanks everyone for hanging in there with us. I think this is probably a little bit more of a casual conversation than usual. We were thinking about contextualizing the moment that we're in through the work we've already done on the show, talking about the fascistic push against bodily autonomy that is coming anti-abortion, anti-transness, lots of anti-sex attitudes, strange Puritan upticks in rhetoric around how even coming across something sexual, even something that's not directed at you is a form of trauma. The way that these things are building up and painting a whole picture about the current moment that we're in. Looking back at some of our work on hatred of sex and also some of our work on fascism to think about how did we get here? I think that there has been a lot of this focus on this Puritan attitude as something that's new with like this younger generation. But I think reactionary attitudes have always been present and in every single generation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like every new generation for a little bit is presented as the generation that will save us or the generation that will be different in some fundamental way, like thinking about how Gen Z were talked about even like five years ago. Part of the shock may just be that like, they're the same as us. Every generation is the same. Mm -hmm. It's hard to contextualize, right? Because it's like we all are around like young people or older people more in different parts of our life. And for me... I certainly see a lot of what it seems like younger people with like these really reactionary attitudes, but there's always been a lot of people my age and older with reactionary attitudes. Mm -hmm. It's more about like how those social media spaces create that. So like, how do you account for that? Like, do you think it's maybe worse than it has been in the past? No, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I just think it's an interesting contradiction to me. So we're working with students and for them to so like naturally and easily accept like abolitionist arguments like they come into class abolitionists they come into class with a set of like convictions like wonderful exciting political convictions but it's really interesting to see like how those clash with another set of political ideals that really are about purity or really are about notions of safety so all of this again was really well articulated in hatred of sex like a a notion of a secure base that is my sense of self and that is a true sense of self that is maintained via these attachments that are all safe and good attachments like that kind of mentality They've done a really good job at getting rid of, like, the cop in their heads, but they've replaced it with, like, a high school counselor. <laughs> oh, no. Who just does a different kind of policing. It's weird to be in front of a group of young people and to be like, guys, let's rethink violation. What if violation was good, actually? Like, it's risky. And, like, maybe it speaks to a kind of intellectual cowardice on my part. <laughs> 
violation is not good, not in and of itself. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> but like, there's a moment where you say that and you're like, wow, they maybe didn't do the reading. And I'm here saying like, let's rethink violation. And they are going to think that I'm pro like incels writing manifestos when i'm like hey like let's look at this text like let's look really closely at what it means for us to rethink violation as a foil to this notion of safety and order maintenance like as a self-violation as a self remapping rather than as a shoring up of the self but you're still in front of a room of young people being like let's rethink violation and then like there's a moment of like you know yeah <laughs> Sounds problematic. <laughs> it's very problematic. Yeah. So I'm just like, yeah, I'm in front of them saying all this stuff. And I'm thinking like, like, and I have to be a little bit withholding insofar as what my own personal beliefs are. Like I tell them what my work is, but I try not to tell them what to think. There hits that moment where it's like this gray area where it's like, okay, like, let's think about the gentrification of language, how like trauma doesn't mean anything anymore. And I'm like, fuck, like, this is the, these are conservative talk points. Then that kind of answers my question. Like, how did they get here? How are we here? Well, there is this scary moment where there's a blurring of lines where it's like the points that I am making out of context, those are conservative, scary talk points. Like when you aren't explicit about being anti-fascist, when you aren't explicit about being pro-community, when you're not explicit about being like pro-experimentation, when you aren't explicit about what that sense of violation means, and you're like, well, no, you shouldn't violate others, but you should invite a kind of violation of the ego like don't hurt other people but be willing to like see yourself as malleable as a receptacle of potential risk and maybe even potential hurt because like being hurt is a human experience it's muddy it just gets really muddy so maybe that's why we're we're at where we're at it's very hard to teach that and i mean there's a lot of you know those like kind of linguistic contradictions or even cultural contradictions like what do you make of the fundamental like how do they hold the incredible contradiction of having these abolitionist ideals while also having these beliefs that essentially call for a intensely policing security state like for, you know, if someone cheats on their partner that they deserve to, like, be fired by their boss or something. Yeah. Like, how do you stand for workers' rights? Or how do you, you know, believe that, like, work shouldn't have total invasion of a worker's private life while also thinking that it's okay for a boss to weigh in on topics like that? Mm. Yeah. Like, how can you be anti-capitalist? <laughs> like, it's just, it just doesn't make sense. That's the thing that sucks, mm -hmm. right, is that we aren't these perfectly rational creatures. And like, most of us do hold ideologies that don't fit together perfectly. But I think what's striking to me is how radically conflicting the idea of being an abolitionist and believing so strongly in that intense security yeah. state. It's also, it feels like there's just a ramping up of both kind of ideologies that's what's confusing too like if you had like a, a soft conception of abolition you're like okay maybe just like get rid of the death penalty soften the police state and then you had like moralizing that would make sense like it wouldn't be right but it would make sense create the trans <laughs> exactly <laughs> that would make sense i think that right now young people are like pretty good at disability um and they're pretty good at invisible disabilities or at least within your specific within, yeah okay you know the people taking your class <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not trying to universalize um 
it's okay. So yes, students are so good at asking for what they need and expecting accommodations, which is really reasonable and good. But at the same time, they'll write me an email like begging for leniency. It's so weird. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Part of this has to do with like just capitalism. So education and school is a service. And so students come into class and they expect to be accommodated, which I think is a very reasonable expectation. You should have your needs met. But at the same time, like you'll have like a, a student who very confidently can express their needs they will have to miss a class because they'll have work or they'll be sick. And I'll get a long email explaining the circumstances of why they aren't in class. And it's just, it's, it's to me, it's, it's so extreme. It's, it's strange. It's, there's just a contradiction there of a, like here you have like a young person who like very much understands like their worth and like what their needs are. And they understand like school is a service and it's supposed to be there for them. And then at the same time, I'll get an email being like, professor, I'm so sorry. I was sick. You, you see it as a contradiction because it's kind of like this deference to the system, you know, this like sense of like confess a mm-hmm. little bit or repent. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Like the yeah. begging for forgiveness. And it's, it's yeah. just like the system is supposed, yeah. I mean, again, the system works because it's broken, <laughs> which meant it was really never supposed to work at all. This is the contradiction episode. Mm. <laughs> 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 Like, for instance, like, I know quite qualitatively, like, you know, my parents got a much worse school education or, like, high school education than I did. Much worse history, much. And then I know that, like, my partner works in schools and that there is, you know, very qualitatively better education on, like, queerness and race and all of these other issues than I had. But also those things are so contextual and so like based in bubbles. You know, you go to any of the states that are like systemically banning books or like have the wrong teacher or the wrong like administrator um, and, you know, the wrong governor. And, and it's just, I'm sure, fundamentally different. And, and that's the thing that's so, um, so difficult about it is that we can't really generalize because um yeah it's so it's so unique to the to the individual um to the exact uh conditions like i know that uh that like the curriculum that my partner teaches it's like you know it's it's still very good compared to what i had in elementary school you know like not too long ago you know, I'm not, not that old. Um, but uh, but at the same time, it's um, it does have to be like watered down in a way that the um, that the other district curriculum doesn't have to be because it's been like being built up for like a longer amount of time and it has like more um, institutional support. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, like, there is more, um, you know, like, weight behind behind teachers if, like, a parent gets upset or, um, and, and there's just, like, it's, it's much more, like, institutionally cohesive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so I guess, I don't know, I, um, it's, it's hard to square the way that it seems like kids are um, 
way more accepting in some ways, but we're also seeing how, uh, how like attitudes, like you have, you know, like these truisms that were, that were meant to, you know, like gain like gay acceptance, like for instance, like, like queerness is not about sexuality. Like we're more than sex. Like that's true. And those things are good. But now I've like seen that reflected back in like, you know, young 20 somethings in a thing where basically like, how dare you compare like being anti-queer to me being like disgusted at like, um, at like sluts or like disgusted at kink or disgusted at, um, you know, like orgies. Well, you know, like whatever the fuck. And, and it's like, and, and it's like, yeah, like if, if you cannot understand how queerness has always been directly connected with, um, every single bodily autonomy fight, which is the ability to like do things without, like huge societal stigma, like queerness, the way that it's been policed for most of history has been with like anti-sodomy mm. laws. It's it's very direct towards the actual acts of sex themselves. Yeah. Um alongside the way that genders or gender is transgressed. And um which again is what we're seeing now with uh, you know, these like bills that you know start out by being like okay we're banning drag queen story hour because you know that's not appropriate for children and then we're going to define drag in this kind of like nebulous way that makes it so then you end up having these laws that like yeah it probably wouldn't stand up constitutionally but like it essentially bans trans people from being in public or like you know, these laws where it's like, if you're around a child as a trans person, it's literally criminalizing like your existence. And to just like not understand how perversion as an idea in society is always built against queerness, is always built up and against that idea of, you know, the periphery, is to like completely misunderstand how they're going after queerness and is also why the assimilationists are fucking stupid (laughs) because they'll always inevitably turn on you yeah 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 they'll they'll inevitably turn on you and you know the night of the long knives always comes eventually (laughs) there's a solid quote from leather folk about this being just an idiot (laughs) yeah that there's like gay nazis Mm -hmm. it's like you can be gay and a nazi but like (laughs) it's pretty (laughs) i wish that there was more of a comprehensive societal understanding of how all of these different pushes are just intimately connected, how the push against gender nonconformity and like anti abnormal sex acts and the idea of like access to birth control and the like ability to, you know, have access to medical services without the government intervening. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, like if you erode one of those things, the others are all at risk. And this is also the reason why like sex workers and like trans sex workers were like, hey, they're coming after all sex workers right now. And we're the canaries in the coal mine. And once they 
can really come after us, they're going to come after everybody else. And it's like that has proven to be extremely relevant, I think, over the last decade. Mm-hmm. We can use that as a segue to like talk about radical feminism. For <laughs> a um, it's making a comeback. Because, yeah, I mean, <laughs> so, so it's like, I, yeah, I am seeing rad femme a lot more recently in like bios, you know. And, and again, it's hard to tell how much of that is just social media shit. But like, it's really concerning, especially seeing a bunch of people that identify as trans and rad femme at the same time. You know, I I came from like a very like radical feminism adjacent household. Mm -hmm. Like my mom in her 20s was very second wave feminist and did a lot of really cool shit, you know, like threw pig's blood on army recruiters and like, you know, like helped uh, folks over the border. But she also did like anti-porn mm. uh, events where they like went and like screamed at people in porn shops um, <laughs> and, you know, for like oppressing yeah. women. And like my mom is not like that anymore. But I think it's like a lot of people don't know the history of like radical feminism. And we're not going to like do a deep dive into that this episode. You know, we've talked about maybe doing an episode on the sex wars, which may happen in the future. Well, it will happen. But <laughs> it'll happen. But it's worth just mentioning that like radical feminism in the 70s and 80s was a massive part of the feminist movement. And it was not, I'm seeing some people saying that it's like a rejection of gender. And then that's kind of the way that they're like, they're having it kind of like endorse transness. Mm-hmm. But, like, that's just not how it is. Like, radical feminism, the whole premise is that femininity is an artificial construction of patriarchy to oppress Mm -hmm. women. So there is nothing natural about femininity. It is purely something that is put on, that is basically made to put women down. And so, you know, there was a lot of prejudice against, like, femme, like, femme lesbians (laughs) during this time. The tyranny of long nails and high heels and lipstick. Yeah, like, my mom felt like she couldn't shave her legs because those things were inherently, you know, like, you're enforcing the patriarchy. And so, of course, you know, if we look at, like, the Michigan Women's Festival, like, that's women with a Y. It famously was this all-women, born-women music festival, and... It didn't explicitly have an anti-trans woman policy at first, but after this like really public kicking out of a trans woman, then it became an official policy. And then that's the thing that brought up Camp Trans, which was a camp outside of Michigan Women's Festival that was protesting the festival. And that actually a lot of older trans thinkers today, like a lot of them like met at Camp Trans um, in like the early 2000s. And so, but then, like, of course, you know, radical feminism was, like, quote, unquote, always accepting of trans masks and trans men, right? Because, of course, anyone that was self-respecting would hopefully see as incredibly minimizing and just, like, straight up misgendering because, like, the whole reason is because they see you as as a woman. Mm -hmm. But, like, there were plenty of trans men at Michigan's Women's Festival. And so the whole construction of it is that trans women fundamentally are males who use femininity to be caricatures of real females. So it's literally just like men enforcing the misogyny of men to enforce the patriarchal gender ideology. And so like when radical feminists, you know, say something like, 
kill all men statements like kill all men statements did not include trans men kill all men statements like very specifically was a bioessentialist statement it was a trans misogyny statement mm-hmm. and so when we talk about terse trans radical or, or sorry <laughs> trans exclusionary trans exclusionary radical feminists like a lot of people that are called TERFs now are literally just transphobes. Like a lot of them are actually like liberals and kind of like right wing evangelicals, even. Like TERF has kind of been completely distanced from radical feminism as such mm-hmm. in the way that it's used in common parlance. But like it has the radical feminism in there because that was like very foundational to radical feminism. And so you see occasionally these people who are like, who call themselves like TERFs, but like with an I. And it's trans-inclusive radical feminism. And yeah. And and it's just fucking stupid. I've even seen a few trans women, you know, that identify as radical feminists. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, talk about like being a pick me or talk about being like a gay Nazi. Like, like it's you know, it's fucking stupid. It's not a wise thing to do. Because like, if you are in those circles as a like trans feminine person your existence is entirely conditional and they can turn on you on any minute for being for being (laughs) you know for being exactly i mean it's also theoretically like incoherent so and i know you know this but just like one one more time for the folks back home if radical feminism is the understanding that women as a class are disproportionately oppressed by nature of them being women and that womanness and femininity is just a like point of oppression. Part of the reason why they're so aggressive against like trans women is because they can't theoretically make sense of the fact like why would someone choose oppression? They're like, okay, we're oppressed. We're the most oppressed. How do we make sense of the fact there's people that want this? That ends up being where they hit a wall. Like, and it's like, honestly, like just even that framework is like pretty stupid. It's like, why, why is that a problem? It's theoretically just incomprehensible. It doesn't make any sense. And also obviously like a huge part of radical feminism is sex work exclusionary. Mm -hmm. Like all sex workers are portrayed as either victims that are in need of rescuing or degenerates who need re-educating, right? There's a sense that it's like, oh, you know, you, you women brainwashed by the patriarchy who don't know better and or like, oh, you're being sex trafficked. Sex workers are constantly being portrayed as like sex trafficking victims by police. Mm-hmm. There's intersections between them. One can become the other, just as any form of work can become a form of trafficking if there's coercion involved. But at the same time, they're not the same thing. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I think that leather communities have always felt so good to me, or at least comparably very good compared to lots of other queer communities, is because like all leather folk were absolutely fucking demonized by the rad femmes. They were just repeating patriarchal systems of violence and, you know, enacting like patriarchal rituals and also like had a lot of gender fuckery that like does not make a whole lot of sense in any sort of like radical feminism perspective and so I think that's one of the reasons as a trans woman I've always felt more at home around leather queers than I have around other types of queers (laughs) because it seems like 
a lot of youths are suddenly identifying as radical feminists, and that really freaks me out. It's like, we already did this, Mm -hmm. and um, third-wave feminism and, like, choice feminism and sex positivity all have a lot of problems that, you know, we've talked about in detail on the show that certainly deserve critique, but uh, (laughs) it's definitely a fucking improvement in a lot of ways. Yeah. Also. Something that I also think is strange about the radical feminism mentality or the ideology, like how it ends up being mobilized is there's this notion of what that person is doing. Like that person is wearing a short skirt. That person is watching porn. That person is like transgressing that hurts all of us. Like what that person's doing hurts me in in a way that doesn't critique the system it critiques the person like again also theoretically like just incomprehensible like it doesn't make any sense like it doesn't make any sense that we can understand the things that we do about structural inequalities it doesn't make any sense that we can understand the things that we do about like the harms of capitalism and then just be like well that woman's wearing a very short skirt and it's harmful for all women because she's also wearing high heels and lipstick it doesn't make any sense i know that's a straw man but that's what it ends up looking like It's like, well, that person cheated on their wife. That person is having this kind of sex and it's bad for all women. It's bad for me. And I need to, we need to all make a stance and have a policy against it. Mm -hmm. It's weird. Thinking back to, to hatred of sex, you Mm -hmm. know, they talked about how a lot of students these days, they've observed that it feels like they see sex as kind of this theater of equality. Mm-hmm. And like that kind of really reads for, you know, why there may be this uptick in radical feminism is that that was like so much of this like very homophobic backlash to like gay men being like too promiscuous and to leather queers for playing with power in ways that are like inappropriate. And also this like super kind of like hyper focus on like the mother as this and like the mother and the child in this way that is like very fucking reminiscent of fascist ideology right because like you know as we've talked about before fascism always asserts the woman and child as these like figures that like don't actually exist in real women and children right Mm -hmm. like when we talk about the child it's not actual children but it's this symbolic figure to basically persecute minorities by saying that they're inherently harmful so you can say like the immigrants coming over is harmful to the future of your children or you know like the stability of your child's neighborhood it's a way to enact violence basically and i think like again thinking back to my fucking childhood the figure of the mother goddess and (laughs) you know this motif of like the baby as the future like i think that that is in the same way that we, you know, talked about like Susan Sontag's essay, Fascinating Fascism, in our Fantasy is Death episode, how fascism in many ways aesthetically is about like a return to the beginning. And there was a lot of that kind of hippie back to like paganism, you know, back to the goddess, back to, you know, the things that are most natural about us a tossing off of all of the decadent creations that oppress us or whatever. Mm -hmm. And of course, that is something that ends up being 
deeply anti-trans and deeply anti-queer. The goddess is dead. Long live the cyborg. Yes. <laughs> and we're working on shirts that say that. So, uh, so um, yeah, get out your wallet. <laughs> so I want to circle back to the question of like sex and the theater of, of equality. And it's also interesting. And this just speaks to maybe things that I take for granted, like when I'm trying to teach and I'm like trying to communicate to students about like sex is political. And for me, it's just like, that's such a, that's so obvious when pushed, it's hard for me to know how to break that down. And so like, I was trying to break it down, like asking them what their sex ed was like, well, how did you learn sex ed? Like think about what you were and weren't taught. Think about like sex ed being like, this appropriate thing that happened between a man and a woman who love each other very, very much, like to create a baby and like think about how much work is being done to give you guys sex education, but then just to not talk about sex. Like think about how much work is put into the curriculum and then like that's political. There's something important there for something to feel so obvious, but then also ends up being so impossible to say that's because of the like the the hatred or that's because of the risk of like being in front of a like even a group a group of adults and telling them like the way that we have sex is normalized and filtered through all of these societal expectations and it's not neutral and you didn't learn about fist fucking did you but then you can't say fist fucking out loud because that that kind of transgression like i'm being the potential like violator in saying that like it's it's weird and it's really mm-hmm. sad yeah. It's confusing that all this work was done, all this really important and good work was done to get them to understand themselves as autonomous and as like, I mean, this circles back to them, to me, like being so confused. Like you guys are so good at saying what you need. You guys are so good at expressing what you don't like and why you don't like it. Then you guys are so into rules. Yeah. <laughs> well, even in some of our, you know, subcultures that are you know, in like we, we've talked about this in the, in the context of sex positivity, mm-hmm. that like by framing sexuality as something that is inherently positive, what we've also created is this kind of like self-helpification of sex. And so you have these like big areas of the Internet that insist like, you know, BDSM for me, like I it does have therapeutic moments, but that's like not why I do it. And that the fact that it's like sold and commodified in the same way by an increasing amount of people in the same way that, you know, like yoga is or like mm-hmm. green juice, <laughs> you know, Bikram, um, yoga, TM, BDSM, yeah, exactly. TM. <laughs> Everything has to be good for you. Everything has to be like about your health and like pleasure for pleasure's sake is mm-hmm. so difficult for so many people to think. And so we have to take like even the things that are just every time something becomes even like slightly normalized or like start to be talked about in the mainstream, there is some way that it's taken out of, you know, something that just exists as this like thing because people love it and has to be like why this thing is fucking good for you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's also kind of weird because I mean, sex is just risky. It's risky. And like, kind of gross half the time in amazing ways like but it's just beyond yeah, complimentary. the complimentary yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> i don't mean disgusting in a bad way i mean like i'm about it like you know like bodies are like fucking weird um which is why we like fucking because they're weird um how did we get here, <laughs> how did we get here? <laughs> i don't know the funny thing about 
sexual health is just like it's hard like if you're having sex like there's so many risks like even the way that we think and talk about stds and stis they're rampant and that's just like a fact of them obviously you need to do as much as you can to do like harm reduction and to like be as healthy as possible but like there's just risks there's just like there are also things that are just sorry i'm like obsessed with viruses <laughs> we can cut this out we can <laughs> go for it go no, there for are it. like hundreds we of... can always cut it out if we yeah need to. for example hpv there's like hundreds of strains of it most of them are asymptomatic like the thing is is that if you've had sex like more than a handful of times you probably have a strain of hpv and that's fine as long as you're getting checkups and you're like getting your pap smear if that's applicable as long as you're like going in and, and like taking care of your health to make sure that you are doing the pre-cancer screenings that's fine take care of yourself but it's also the weird purity politics of like well then that person is like tainted we can't, there's no such thing as like clean sex there's just safer sex and harm reduction but you can't say that you can't like stand in front of a room full of people and being like you all probably have hpv <laughs> 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 um, yeah you can't <laughs> and, well unless you got vaccinated when you were young i guess yeah, but that's only seven different strains i guess nine strains now everyone get that vaccine it's really cool that it's so uh culturally acceptable and it's great that there seems to be some evidence that it might lower rates of cancer like amazing vaccines are so great but that's an std vaccine <laughs> mm -hmm. but because we can't say that we can't say like we're going to inoculate ourselves against this annoying STD. It, it's the cancer vaccine. And it just isn't. But also everyone has HPV. Sex is messy. Yeah. <laughs> big, big thing so, today. Big thing so from Aurora. So true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. You probably have HPV. <laughs> well, is I mean, there... I mean, maybe that's a strong claim. Like, statistically, like, viruses are everywhere. Everyone. Um deal with it don't stigmatize them the purity politics of there's the appropriate way to do this and you like this is the checklist of how you get consent and there's only this type of consent this is the checklist of like how you have safe sex and this is the only way to have safe sex and these are the things that are the risks so the stds sdis and like these are cut and dry and they just absolutely are not and it just none of that is just how sex works at all. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that, you know, to exist as a human is anytime you come into contact with another human is uh, a moment of potential vulnerability and potential harm. Mm -hmm. And that is scary. Yeah. <laughs> so just connecting back to the self-helpification and like, how we got here with how sex positivity just became so co-opted and so i think it's interesting to think about it in relationship to how academics were just so interested in the hookup culture like in the early 2000s do you remember this phenomenon it, like might be kind of fun to talk about um, um i <laughs> don't really remember but i or, or like maybe a little bit but yeah tell us about that Okay, so a ton of radical feminists, so they were really concerned about what pornography was doing to kids' sex lives. They're just like people between the ages of 14 and early 20s. They're watching porn and it's influencing how they're having sex. People are now coming on each other's boobs. Um, they were very, very, very concerned. And they were also really concerned about hookup culture, which they defined as like fellatio. 
play show in the context of heterosexual, like casual fling. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, okay, they're like, they we're really concerned about the sex that the youths are having. They're watching all this porn. And then all these women are going around and they're just blowing all these men. And th- men seem to be getting off, but like women seem to not be liking this. And they're just like, why are, we, why is this happening? And then that's where you get clitoracy, I think. <laughs> I think there's this like cultural cultural moment where people were wor- really suddenly worried about the pleasure gap, pornification, but that's not even pornification of sex. Like if they're worried that kids are watching too much sex or too much porn, <laughs> but then at the same time, the, the kind of sex that they're having is wrong because it's just women blowing men that doesn't compute. But I think it just was a funny reaction so, like, suddenly all these books are being written about the pleasure gap in hookup culture. Like, why is there so much fellatio happening? Why is there so much non-reciprocal fellatio? And then the answer just became clitoracy. It's just like, let's just bio-essentialize. It's like, that's also not because of porn. Like, hookups were a thing that happened before, porn, yeah. you know, like, pornography. And it was just something that was, like, less talked about than it is now. Yeah, like, under cis-heteronormative patriarchy, like, straight women don't get off as much as straight men that is true and makes sense and like it's good that that is something that is addressed but also it's just so boring for everyone else that that is like the only way that anything can be talked about and again it's like any single time I talk about like BDSM or just like any sort of non-normative sex at all I inevitably get like hordes of these, you know, a lot of them probably identifying as rad fans (laughs) who like almost entirely make it about straight men are pressuring women into doing these things. And it's like, okay, well, yeah, those things are rape culture and like that is not okay and bad. But like I am like a transsexual gay over here. Like I'm not even trying to talk Mm -hmm. to you. But, like, also there are plenty of straight women that are having, like, really great kinky sex that is completely consensual and negotiated and fine. Like, those things are not impossible to achieve. And the fact that, like, so many people will come in and, like, call me, like, porn-brained <laughs> or, like, whatever. Like, yeah, like, you watch too much porn. Like, I don't watch porn like porn doesn't get me off and you know like like visual porn doesn't do it for me like I have a lot of friends that make very good porn and I can like direct you to very good porn that my online Mm -hmm. friends make but I like to be in really intense power dynamics and do things that lots of people find very extreme and never watch porn so explain that like I don't know. Again, it's that weird thing where it's like, well, that person is transgressing. Like, wow, you like BDSM. It's your fault that heteropatriarchy is what it is because of your queer BDSM relationships. Like the same kind of brainworm stuff where it's like, well, you personally didn't recycle. And so it's your fault for global warming. It- but but it's even <laughs> it's worse, than that worse than because. That. <laughs> Putting anything on individual choice, like under capitalism or like climate change and saying that's the reason I do think is very ridiculous and bad. But also like it's like good to recycle. (laughs) I do not think it's good if you're interested in BDSM to not do BDSM. Like like I I don't think that there is any 
anything that is like good. I think that is a completely neutral thing, whether you decide to do that or not. <laughs> like some of the conversations around trauma that have also come out of, you know, this kind of weird need to police, like basically saying that the existence of sexuality is inherently traumatizing by like any sort of proximity. It's taking the arguments of like sexual harassment and sexual abuse, and it's basically universalizing them to any sort of like knowledge that a thing even exists is like inherently yeah. traumatizing. Like, they're definitely one-offs and are like largely roasted. But then you also have tons of people like coming and defending them. It's like there is this this person who was saying that like like parents should not ever have sex when their kids are in the house. You know, <laughs> like they should get a hotel or a babysitter. And it's like, you know, because of how inherently traumatizing it is to hear your parents have sex or to wander into your parents have sex that like that will destroy a child and like ruin their lives wow. forever. And it's like for most of human history, number one, like in still lots of the world, parents and kids like live in much smaller spaces. Parents have had sex like in proximity to their kids in much smaller proximity. And it's been yeah, fucking fine. From, from like, time immemorial. <laughs> Yeah, time immemorial. But like the idea that it is inherently something that will like fuck you up forever, like it ties into the whole kink at pride arguments. This idea that if a kid happens to go to this event that is like largely for adults and they see like this fucking leather daddy in a harness, you know, walking a leather pup who has a mask on, that just because those are used in like a fetish context, that that will like inherently ruin them and like destroy mm -hmm. them. Like I think the opposite is true. I think a lot of parents, especially like with more religious backgrounds, they try to pretend that they do not have sex and they like try to basically completely prevent their children from like knowing that like they are sexual mm -hmm. beings that fucks up your kids way more because then they'll have a fucked up weird relationship to sex and also you won't be talking about it it's a fucking normal thing and that that's like a normal part yeah. of life that seems a lot more traumatizing to me yeah the like surprise this is what sex is and then like not knowing how to do it like which doesn't say there's a kind of way to do it but like i don't know lubrication for example <laughs> Like some basics yeah. um i mean this also ties really nicely to hatred of sex like the mobilization of the good freud the freud that said it's because we aren't talking about sex <laughs> that we're creating all of these hysterias and these anxieties around it and so when the time comes women have terrible experiences on their wedding nights and it also ties back to the really like creepy notion of a secure base and a safe home is one that is sexless in a way that the mother's body after she gives birth belongs to the child like and like before she has kids it belongs to the husband so like there's no autonomy there but then like after a mother has a child then the mother is just a completely sexless being and is like necessarily sexless like for the well-being of the child because the child has to have this pure relationship with the mother it's weird it's almost anti-feminist <laughs> yeah but even people that consider themselves to be like very progressive the notion of like a single mother with a sex life is abhorrent like a demonic figure in our like cultural imaginary it's like like how dare a married couple have a sex life they absolutely need to like book a hotel room and get a babysitter but how dare a single parent 
have relationships with multiple people that end up in the child's life. One of my favorite responses to like the really terrible tweet was like, you're right, they should have gotten a sex box or something. And then it linked to um, that clip. Do you know Nathan for you with Nathan? No, Fielder? I was just thinking like a cone of silence. <laughs> no, but it's basically it's this show where like Nathan Fielder, who's like it, it's hard to describe, but he's like basically this weirdo and like goes around and like very deadpan monotone gives like business advice to random businesses, but they're always like fucking insane. And then it's just like really awkward and weird. And so he like goes to this hotel and his advice is that a lot of parents, when they're going on vacation with their kids, they'll want to have sex because they're on vacation, but they can't because their kids are in Mm -hmm. the room. So to take care of that, he (laughs) they construct a completely soundproof box that like a kid can be in (laughs) and like plays jungle sounds that have like animal sounds that are like close enough to sex sounds so that even if some sounds like went in they would never notice it so they couldn't be traumatized Mm -hmm. by the sex and you know where they can like read and like play with stuff and it's just this beautiful perfect place and so then he has a child actor come in and be in it and then he has these two porn actors (laughs) fuck really loudly (laughs) like right outside the box with the child actor's parents sitting there and they're like what the fuck and then he has a full orgy he's like I just want to make sure it holds (laughs) up So he has like, so it was like eight foreign actors like come in and like have this huge orgy next to them. And then the child actor comes out at the end and it's like, oh, did you hear anything? And it's like, no, like I had a lovely Whoa. time. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> so, I need to watch anyway, that. Anyway. Oh my God. It's super fucking funny. So anyway, that, that is uh, what, um, what is needed, yeah. obviously. Just the contradiction between children being at once hypersexualized and then at the same time completely pure. Like, and we've talked about this contradiction a lot. Like, I think you did a really beautiful job talking about the child in our review of Mad God for subscribers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Please subscribe. Like, children need to be protected from sex. Like, they don't know what it is. They're uniquely pure and that needs to be preserved. But then at the same time, don't have sex on vacation like your child knows what you're doing and it's traumatizing if you're a single parent don't bring your significant other around them until you're ready to marry them because the child knows that you're having sex with that person and you're that person's replacing daddy or mommy and that's traumatizing like theoretically like it doesn't hold up it's that like the contradiction that ends up just policing the yeah. kind of behavior that's appropriate to do around children and then it like ends up creating the conditions for the harms that take place in the family (laughs) yeah i think that that figure is just so funny though like the the child that just that knows all the child that like is hyper aware of all the sex that's happening around them and they're just that is also like hyper sexualized so toddlers and tiara like creepy bullshit or like of the thing that heterosexual parents do and they're like who's your girlfriend to the three-year-old rumors (laughs) but at the same time like my little perfect angel was brought to me by the stork we don't have sex we've never had sex don't have my kid go to sex ed like i'm gonna bring my kid to pride because i'm like i don't know why maybe i don't know maybe bring your kids to pride i don't know um (laughs) wait why do people bring their kids there's like kid events like you can bring them to the main parade that's fine and like it's not actually again it's not actually going to be traumatizing yeah. no. that's fine if you want to do that Trump. 
but like it's also not for them. Traumatizing for them to watch like a U.S. bank float go by covered in rainbows. <laughs> All those like cop cop cars. Yeah, that's the real. That's the real trauma. <laughs> Who do you think they'll grow up to be? Someone that works at U.S. Bank, Jesus. yeah, or just yeah the them watch looking at the like cops in the uniforms. That's yeah. the trauma. <laughs> yeah, for real. It's also such a uniquely. Maybe not uniquely, but it is a very American Christian thing. Our disdain to like any sort of sex being around Mm -hmm. children at all. I went to a penis festival. One of the couple of penis festivals that happen, like I guess it's a fertility festival in this like pretty small town in Japan. And like they have like this huge temple that is dedicated to this fertility god and they have like all of these like giant penises and like statues and then there's like all of these different food carts that have all of this different like penis and like some vagina shaped food and then they have this giant penis shrine thing that a bunch of robed men like are spinning around in the circle and like chanting and and like handing out free sake I got wasted on free sake and there were like so many kids like it's the entire village is there and it's all about sex that's what the entire thing is about it's a small town it's conservative you know i'm sure like attitudes towards queerness are probably not great Mm -hmm. (laughs) like but at the same time the symbol of a child like knowing that sex is a thing or even knowing what sex is is not like considered inherently traumatizing or something that like can't even be referenced so statistically speaking and we can't we have to be like wary of how people gain statistics, but young people aren't having sex at the same rates that they were. P- part of it has to do with COVID. Part of it has to do with like new mentalities about sexual maturation. But people in Europe right now are like really worried that young people aren't having sex. Like they're like they're talking about it. They're having think tanks. Like they're wondering like what? Okay, so what is it if this like you're not hitting these emotional milestones. And again, I don't want to standardize, like there's a, I don't want to suggest that there's an appropriate specific way you're supposed to like sexually develop in having relationships. And like, if there should be, like there shouldn't be a standard age where you start having sex, like that's going to be radically subjective, but like they're worried that so many young people just aren't having it. It's a trend. I guess for me, like the way that it's framed is Mm -hmm. fertility, right? And yeah, which is actually, I think, a sign of like fascist thinking, right? <laughs> like, oh, like, yeah, no, this is the issue in like in Japan right now with the falling birth rates. Elon Musk tweeting about like falling birth rates is like, that's a sign of like weird proximity to fascism. Um, yeah. Or not even proximity, honestly. It just uh, is. Yeah, it just is fascism. That is like directly like people don't need to have sex. People don't need to have babies. The point is, is that lots of the time when people are talking like people on Twitter when they're making these threads they're not making them from a place of like I personally am asexual and don't like to have sex and it's like that's great it's like if you do these things you are a bad person who is traumatizing you know everyone who comes into contact with you ever in your life you know and that's really fucked up yeah the question of like oh yeah i didn't consent to watching a sex scene in a film (laughs) jesus christ (laughs) turn off the film let's just leave Um, yeah like 
that's the thing. Like, you just shouldn't watch movie. Like, why are you like, <laughs> like, 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 watch children's shows, I guess, you know, like we have children's shows that are like really watered down and for babies. So mm-hmm. watch those and then or like get friends to like warn you. One of my girlfriends right now, like she's very specifically triggered by fingers being cut off and mm-hmm. you know watches all the transgressive fucked up films but then like fingers being cut off it's like the big trigger and so that's something that like she's very careful going into it and if she can she'll ask someone that has already seen it and then like close her eyes during that scene only but that's like not stopping her from watching films I've talked a little bit about <laughs> talked a lot about triggers but it, I think it's important like a good mentality to have about that is like at least this is what I tell myself this is what works for me and I'm pretty lucky to not have too many triggers but the thing is is like I can get upset because I'm triggered and I'm reliving a really painful confusing thing that happened to me but it wasn't the thing that triggered me that harmed me I'm not being violated and it's not like my consent isn't being broken by this thing that evokes the memory. It was the originary event that did that to me. And I'm displacing my feelings of hurt and my feelings of a desire for, like, I don't know, maybe accountability or something when I'm attacking the thing that evoked the feeling. It was the originary event, you know? I think that's important. Like, these things, like, images, um, media, like, it evokes these feelings. And sometimes what it evokes, like, does the thing. So, for example, puritanical rhetoric, all this anti-trans rhetoric, like, that creates a climate where there are hate crimes, like, constitutes those environments. But me watching a film with a with a sex scene like that's not even a trigger for me but if it were I'll give a simple example it's not the film that created the thing it was rape culture it was like the individual but the the film in and of itself as an artwork didn't do that and in fact like is an important piece of artwork it's like people don't know how to enjoy art anymore and like part of what makes art enjoyable too is also that risk i think it's important at least for me personally, like I like grappling with like understanding my relationship like with my trauma. Um, hopefully not in a too navel gazy way, but yeah, like we've talked about, for instance, in the movie L in our review of it, anything can be a trigger. Like our main character's like cat. main trigger, yeah, is a cat meowing because of its association to the traumatic event. But like a cat meowing is obviously not <laughs> not a violent thing, and also not something that even if you actually tried to create some like systematized warning system, which would always be bad for art, even if you tried to do that, cats meowing would not be on it, right? Yeah. And that's the nature of things. I've been dealing with some shit recently. And like the other day I was talking about something with a friend and then I like felt like total garbage later. And I realized it's because it like brought up a bunch of stuff that I didn't expect because of, you know, the context and everything else. But like, that's just the way of how, that's just how we work and how life works. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, to assume that degree of control. So that's a really bad understanding of autonomy. So I'm going to be autonomous and I'm going to create a world where I'm never triggered by assuming that I can control something like, again, the triggers the cat meowing versus like creating the structural things that we need to like get the resources to actually be autonomous, <laughs> to like actually be able to take care of ourselves. A little abstract. If I'm so caught up in 
And again, like trying to protect myself from art, I can't look to see like what actually is hurting me and like what's hurting me personally right now is like I don't have healthcare. <laughs> wow. Um that'll I do get healthcare. It. Uh, you know, um, like what's hurting people right now, like what's hurting queer people right now, like it isn't the sex scene. It isn't like being surprised by a sex scene that you don't in- personally enjoy. Like it's the fact that like queer people don't have healthcare. It's the fact that like protections and employment are being rolled back. That's what's harming us right now. Things like that. <laughs> and also ironically, the, the the very family system that probably is the thing that traumatized you or likely has something to do with your traumatization is the very thing you're trying to affirm within your structure of saying sex scenes shouldn't be in movies. Yeah. <laughs> or saying like, that there needs to be, you know, these protections of like, you know, systematized protections against art. Yeah. Your talking points shouldn't look like focus on the family talking points. Yeah. I wish more people would uh, would pause when that happens, but for some reason. Yeah. We end up having to walk on this knife's edge because, like, and I... I mentioned this in the beginning. So I'm lecturing and I'm saying, like, let's rethink violation. Like, what if this was like a different way to think about like identity making and a different way to collectively understand ourselves politically, creating the conditions for violation and boundary blurring. But then it's just like, okay, well, fuck me. (laughs) Um, I'm just saying, like, what if these notions of violation like can be good? Um, That ends up being like the scary risk. But then again, you walk it back, you you do the reading, you like, okay, it's a self-violation, like understood as reforming of your ego, like of a breaking down of identity, because shoring up identity, like shoring up like what it means to be a good child, a good mother, a good citizen, that's when you're like letting the cop into your brain. <laughs> that's when we've bought in to these structures that are actually harming us, that are actually like taking away the possibility for meaningful self-making, for meaningful community building. Yeah. Like what do actual people want outside of these constructions that are incredibly delimiting? What I was thinking we could do at this part of the episode is talk about how you felt about things since doing the last episode, you know, where you presented such a personal piece of work and also talked about these like really serious things in the context of like both of our lives and how you felt in the wake of that now. It was really exciting and like cathartic to finally be sharing that and to finally put things in their proper context to be able to take credit for my work and for it to be recognizable as work, given how my contributions had been so minimalized, but then also just given how, at least in my opinion, my work was reduced to a narrative. To say narrative is to to be really charitable. So my work, my careful contribution was reduced to a a flourish. An aesthetic flourish. Yeah, an aesthetic flourish, like something that was actually born both from like an incredibly painful life experience, but then also like Years of careful advocacy work and research that all came together in a presentation and then a final project, something that I like continue to work on. Quotes that reduced me to just a victim of what I experienced rather than as someone that is working through it and like doing work with that experience. But then also someone who's plugged into creating work on trauma, not just 
reliving their trauma. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not just traumatized. I do good work on trauma. <laughs> and, like, to minimize my work by just presenting me as a traumatized subject that because I am traumatized and thus in tune in these other ways that people that perhaps haven't had that experience are in tune that I am like the secret trauma whisperer. And maybe it's the case that because I'm traumatized, I'm more sensitive or attuned or have like a very particular read on things. But it's also the case that I'm very well trained and I've done a lot of research and work on trauma theory and on trauma. Like <laughs> it felt really good to claim ownership over words and experiences. And again, especially because of the nature of that work. So especially because, and this is privileged knowledge and it wasn't in the essay and it's stuff that I don't usually talk about, especially because I was raped and that certainly shapes my knowledge and like I had my autonomy and I had my gripped from me <laughs> in those ways. And then to have the careful research that I did in that field sort of taken away similarly. It stung, it hurt. It was incredibly re-traumatizing to reclaim that, to feel good about my work being work was like amazing. But it was also like there was this moment where it felt scary also to be so honest about that experience. And it did feel like punching up and it did feel risky. And then to do something that felt so risky and like to be so afraid of all of the potential backlash, to be so afraid of all the backlash and to be like self-censoring and sort of keeping my head down because I was just so afraid of all of the possible negative ramifications that I could experience because I was honest about having been exploited by someone who had power over me. <laughs> Again, this is how this is so re-traumatizing. Like, how does this sound? Like, I'm worried about being exploited by someone who I trusted that had power over me, who told me that my experience of the events wasn't their experience and that it was all in good faith and they had every possible good intention. But to be so afraid of the negative outcome, to be so afraid of the, their power over me and then to just be honest about it all and then for nothing to happen was was wild. It also just exposes how we're so hard on ourselves and we're so careful to be the appropriate kind of victim, to be the appropriate kind of complaint bringer. Like, we have to be very careful about how we do that because maybe these things that are hurting us will hurt us more. And they certainly do. Like, there certainly is backlash. But all of the things that I experienced, just like trying to tell myself that everything was fine or like trying to like censor myself, like we're so much worse than just being honest. And this isn't to say that anything changed, like no one's apologized, but that was just a, an interesting insight. I do think it felt cathartic to make the episode. And I mean, even though I wasn't like neither of us were very explicit in the episode, maybe me even less so, it felt good to be able to talk about it in the context of your paper, which felt like a meaningful thing to work through in that time, I guess. Like I was talking about before, like I, I keep finding things that I don't expect to be really triggering in ways that just suck and are really unexpected because I'm mostly fine and like my life is mostly good. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things about being triggered, right? That's like so strange is that you can feel a certain way and be in a state of mind where like things are going well, but still, you know, these things that like live in places in your mind and body that you don't fully have control over can suddenly like raise their heads in ways you weren't expecting. And so that's a very destabilizing feeling. Mm -hmm. I'm doing well. I feel the last like several months have been a re big reaffirmation 
for me of the community that I have and like many different aspects of my life that is like very tangibly materially there for me. Mm -hmm. And that is a really good feeling that that doesn't always get affirmed in just a day-to-day life. Sometimes you need to feel a little bit like in crisis for that to really come together. Yeah. It's also really, really wonderful to see the reactions. It was really affirming (laughs) that all of this resonated so much. And like, it was really exciting to have people DM me and ask me for the work. I need to re-edit it for a general population. <laughs> um, it just like, it needs to get re-edited. So I apologize if you've messaged me and you've asked me for a copy of it and I said yes and then I haven't sent it to you. It's just, I need to edit the like, the cop out of it. <laughs> a hard lesson that people that do this kind of work are always learning is that we think that we know better because we care about these things, but we're just as like in the trenches as everyone else. Yeah. Just because I understand structures of abuse and harm, I can't just like step over them. So there's that. So I should know better um, than to imagine that I can know better. <laughs> I should know better than to think that I'm I'm above all of these structures that I care so much about and that I'm like trying to understand and to undermine. But then also like the rude awakening too that like even these people that we trust and care about that should know better because they also ostensibly care about these things like they end up harming us or not recognizing that they harm us and I'm doing the thing that I always do and I because <laughs> I'm so openly critical of like harm as a abstract term and again like we've done so much work on the gentrification of language and this just shows my academic ease. It's like I have this immediate impulse to like make everything abstract and to like do that kind of gentrification (laughs) in our conversations. But it just goes to show that like despite the fact that like in my instance, here I am writing about trauma and like writing about how easy it is to like look away from the people that are wronged. And I like I'm hurt and confused that that happened to me. Like here I am. writing about narrative and how fraught it is and then I'm confused when someone tries to take mine yeah yeah it also relates to the fact that like in building a power dynamic you try to understand what the potentiality for in this case like actual harm is you have a very clear understanding at least on paper like what what abuse is but even if you know that you can be the most conceptually intellectually brilliant and then you're still subject to those material conditions that create the circumstance for abuse to happen. And like, again, we tell ourselves that we're, we're better, we're, we're going to get over it. And we're, like, we're always sort of at risk. Yeah, it's not so different than us talking at the beginning of the episode about the rise of like fascistic values and how that's like always something that like that people are vulnerable to. Bad thinking is is something we're all vulnerable to that that we're all like also capable of harm and being harmed. And that that's not something that's avoidable as much as we'd like to think otherwise, as much as we'd like to prepare, as much as we'd like to guard ourselves. One of the things that I was really worried about is like my ability to be vulnerable because that's something that I've always valued about myself and that I would have like lost that or something. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I have. I do think I navigate the world a little differently, but I don't feel like I've lost that like foundational ability to like give myself. I don't have a good answer for this and I wish I could attach this to like something that we've read or some kind of theory, but like 
oh my god does it become so easy to be jaded and angry and like we should totally be angry because everything really sucks right now <laughs> um yeah it's but a pretty fucked up world right now be angry be like righteously angry but like it doesn't take very much for someone to become jaded and then for that jadedness to turn into something really scary and reactionary that worries me so I th- I've been sort of like stewing <laughs> alone and thinking about to what extent, like, am I capable or, or am I going to, like, reproduce this bullshit? <laughs> the things that made me jaded, am I going to just do that to other people? Am I just going to be part of that structure? I don't know. Like, the Radfem bullshit, where it's just, like, I'm harmed, and so now I'm going to, like, police those that I think harmed me, thus creating more harm. <laughs> like, I'm hurt by rape culture, I'm going to blame other people that are sort of caught in rape culture and thus think that I'm above it, but I'm just going to actually extend the arm of it. I'm just going to make it worse, I guess, in an academic level. Like, I'm part of academia and academia, like, can really suck, can suck so bad. But at the same time, it's like a massive privilege that I can get paid to teach students and to read books. Like, I wish I could read more of the books that I wanted to. Unfortunately, I have to kind of cater what I do to like to make it appropriate and to like make it seem relevant to a potential like outside observer who only just walks in to hear me <laughs> stand or to watch me standing in front of like a group of 40 students saying like what if we embraced violation <laughs> uh, uh-huh. <laughs> who haven't done the reading um I have to worry about like okay so academia sucks and like, I'm jaded, and so, like, I'm burnt out, and I fall behind on my emails, and I'm not emailing my students back, and then that, like, kind of ruins their life a little bit, and then maybe they become jaded, and then I become part of the problem. And that's, like, the smallest worry, like, not responding to a stupid fucking email. Um, But, like, at what point does me, like, showing up and just being angry, and, like, beyond angry, just jaded and, like, upset about how things are going, like begin to negatively affect like the other people i'm worried about that yeah that was another rant i was thinking about how speaking of trauma like you know i had like a post on instagram about genocidal rhetoric or something that you know that is uh, escalating in across the u.s against trans people and then someone like commented i don't get why people like this follow me um in the first place but but like (laughs) like this big long thing about how it was like most TERFs are hard R survivors and so like it's good to go in with like empathy because like even though they're wrong they think that way because of trauma and so you know like it's our job to like argue kindly with them to change their mind because like no one changes their mind while being combative or cruel the reality is like there are exceptions but the vast majority of people who do fucked up things have trauma of their own that like caused it. Most people that have trauma don't become like horrible bigots, part of a hate movement that wants to eliminate a very marginalized minority from existence, basically by denying us care and pushing us out of public life. Yeah. So yeah, like go fuck yourself. And like, we can recognize how trauma produces more trauma and we can also like not 
blame the victim and literally tell like trans people like we should be nice to terse because they're hard r survivors like like do you, do you not think that like trans people are like fucking survivors you asshole like, there's so much to unpack there first hard r I know what it means. Like, obviously, they're talking about rape. I don't know what that euphemism accomplishes. There's something that's, like, missing the point there or just trivializing about that. Kind of feels like the type of thing that's, like, built to, like, trivialize whatever that person means by not hard art survivors. Yeah. It's doing the same fucking thing that, like, the TERFs are doing to themselves, right? Where they're, like, the poor victimized cis women that are, like, the real victims yeah who then go and like take that out to harm and like police like other marginalized people which you know obviously trans people have not been the only marginalized person that's been hurt by like white cis women who are traumatized you know like yeah this weird euphemism hard r implies that there is more or less real rape what the fuck also so (laughs) the worry okay these people are trauma survivors you have to be like really attentive to their trauma it's like you weren't traumatized by a trans woman. You were traumatized by your, like, shitty-ass, like, community. Like, people that are, like, survivors of, like, the Westboro Baptist Church or whatever, like, their trauma comes from the thing that they were also doing to queer people. It's a displacement. It's also just, like, so obvious. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> if someone is harmed by a marginalized person, it's, like, some fucking person who's, like, I was robbed and that person was, like, black and therefore, like, I'm triggered by black people. Like, fuck off. No. <laughs> you don't get to generalize marginalized people that way you wouldn't do that about whiteness you wouldn't do that about straightness and you wouldn't do that about cisness but for some reason if it's a marginalized identity it's fine to like paint the entire group that way just because you are harmed by one person which is a hallmark of fascism right it's like you know like trump in his era was like or during his presidency had his whole thing where he was like compiling like different crimes committed by immigrants (laughs) And, you know, like a lot of these like turf websites will like use these few examples of trans women who have committed sexual assault or rape as a way to say that like trans women are sexual predators. Lots of cis women are sexual predators, but that is never going to be used to say all cis women are sexual predators because that's not how that works. Mm -hmm. The majority is never at risk of that. Or the yeah. cultural majority. Let's talk about the New York Times, sure, why not? Uh, <laughs> uh, so the New York Times, for anyone who doesn't know, is they've been horrible always. And like the a bunch of New York Times contributors and other folks like wrote a big letter that was basically tracing both how the New York Times' coverage is systemically transphobic, but also like giving a historical context for how it's also has been extremely homophobic in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also been racist and Zionist and everything else. But um, specifically talking about how during the AIDS epidemic, how like the New York Times played a big role in kind of like spreading moral panic about mm-hmm. AIDS and about gay men, which, you know, was a time when like a stigma was really awful and it was just a really fucking horrible time. The New York Times played a part in that. And now the New York Times, they're acting fucking innocent and basically completely dismiss the letter, even though their coverage and like completely dismissing that their coverage is super biased, even though they're 
coverage is being referenced as justification in tons of the bills that are passing across the country to ban trans people from sports, to ban the trans healthcare, and to like ban us from like public spaces. Like tons of New York Times articles are the things that are helping justify that shit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's not a mistake. There is a direct relation to the role of kind of like laundering those more directly like fascist right wing ideas to a more liberal populace. And I think, I mean, if you're, God forbid, still subscribe to the New York Times, like unsubscribe Jesus. But like, also, I think what's more useful is if you have a parent or you like, you know, some like kind of like milk toast liberals in your lives, convince them to unsubscribe and like have their friends unsubscribe because it's really fucked up. Lots of these, you know, just asking questions type of like liberal journalists months or like a year ago all said like, oh, yeah, well, this is entirely about trans kids. It has nothing to do about trans adults. But of course, like now we're at the point, very rapid escalation, where now they're just going straight out for all trans healthcare, care. Mm-hmm. And along with bills that are trying to criminalize drag and then therefore criminalize like trans people in public and like trying to make it a felony for like trans people to be in the same bathroom as a child just the most insane stuff and the funniest one that i just saw forgot what state it is they just tried to propose a banning of gay marriage by saying marriage is between one male and one female which is hilarious because it's like they've been stocking up to do this we've been telling them that they're gonna go after all of the gay shit too and all the assimilationist gays are like no marriage is fine (laughs) yeah like of course they're going to go on the back once they've managed to thoroughly stigmatize one aspect of queerness then you can lump that together to go after the whole thing it's pretty fucked up but i'm legally female fucker so come at me (laughs) If marriage is between one male and one female, if I got married to any of my partners right now, it would be illegal. (laughs) I mean, this also connects to like a weird hiding behind free speech in a weird way. Um, So it's like we're just asking questions. We're doing really important journalism by making sure that we look at both sides and report things equitably and fairly so if we didn't ask these questions we wouldn't be doing our due diligence so us the very well-established reputable newspaper is going to create a platform for these like overtly bigoted articles absolutely and like if you're more interested in like really unpacking the details of that jules gill peterson like the foremost expert on trans children wrote the book about it wrote the literal book yeah and (laughs) she's a friend of the pod um she is now one of the rotating hosts for death panel podcast and has also done a lot of other articles and other podcasts out there where she really unpacks all of that in fabulous detail. So I highly recommend seeking out everything she has to say about the issue because no one does it like her. Mm-hmm. All right. So the final thing we're going to do today is after we released our last episode, Trauma and Taboo, The Unspeakability of Sexual Violation, which was based entirely around 
Aurora's original work. After that came out, we asked some folks on Instagram if anyone wanted to anonymously share any illegible or unspeakable narratives of violation with us. In place of confessions today, we thought we'd share those. The reason behind this was our desire to create some space for legibility to be recognizable. This person says, my stepfather was the perpetrator. The police canceled their investigation. The thought of anyone desiring me after my last two exes is sickening. I dated a boy when I was 15, and he drove me to an abandoned barn, almost raped me, and tried to kill me with his hands when I wouldn't comply. I barely escaped with my life. As a sex worker, I feel sharing any discontentment with my job is unspeakable, as it's just fuel for swerfs. But girl, I hate every part of this, and each time I work it feels like a violation. I don't feel any job has the capacity for consent. Like, we all gotta eat, and even when you can pick another job, as an autistic brown, BPD, transsexual in a rural community, not really. I can't. The narrative of how violating sex work is has been taken away from sex workers time and time again, either by men fetishizing, saving us, or by swerfs, looking at us with pity and disgust. Wow, that was remarkable. Yeah. He was in the process of forcibly undressing me and finally stopped when I told him I wasn't on birth control. When I was raped by a partner a few years ago, I told my best friend, and their first response was what happened, but not out of love, out of the need to know the events that had taken place so they could decide for themselves if I had been raped, in their opinion. And those are all the ones we got. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those with us. Yeah, thank you so much for, for trusting us, and we hope that we did your narratives justice. Absolutely. Fully creating a space for them. Mm -hmm. That's the episode for today. If you would like to help support the show and keep us going, we are at www.patreon.com slash drunkchurch. Sign up at any level tier and get access to full episodes. We have some merch on the way. And we appreciate all of you so much who have signed up and kept us going over all this time. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for everyone that does contribute. But it's also free to listen and to recommend and to subscribe <laughs> and to comment and to engage with us. And that's important. So keep doing that. Feel free to, you know, share the show with someone else that you think may get something out of it. Yeah. Um, and also, um, at this point, like, it's exciting to be in season two because we have work to point to. So, like, definitely listen to our reading of, of Hatred of Sex. Like, it's a three-part episode. Four-part. And our, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. That was a colossal undertaking. Um <laughs> Like, take a look at our review of Salo. Take a look at our work on Susan Sontag and fascinating fascism. Like, binge us, I guess. <laughs> Indulge. We're very bingeable. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me 
bless you for building a new dream. Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly, in that vine-covered chapel on the hill, your face was a hymn that lingers still so bless you my darling my angel heaven is mine and life is divine with you bless you darling for being an angel just when it seemed that heaven was not for me bless you for building a new dream just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly That vine-covered chapel on the hill Your face was a hymn that lingers still So bless you, my darling, my angel Heaven is mine and love